Coming up this evening on NTD Business. The SEC wants businesses to disclose their greenhouse gas emissions. It would be a landmark rule with implications for businesses and investors. Economic pain in Hong Kong is forcing authorities to loosen their zero COVID policy. That's despite the city facing its worst COVID wave yet. And Germany trying to cut reliance on Russia, its largest natural gas supplier, but is looking far into the Middle East instead. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Paul Graney here live from New York City. The SEC wants companies to disclose their greenhouse gas emissions. Availed a new proposal today, the draft rule could help investors understand a company's impact on the environment. It'll also help you understand how climate advocacy could affect the companies you invest in. For businesses, it means more reporting and possibly some operational changes if they want to stay in the good books. They would have to disclose their own direct and indirect greenhouse gas emissions. Big companies would also have to disclose emissions generated by their suppliers and partners called Scope 3 emissions. Activist investors have pushed to add the Scope 3 requirement, saying it's the best way to convince companies to reduce emissions. But corporate groups argue there is no agreed method to calculate Scope 3 emissions, and providing that much detail would be difficult and expensive. You can tell the SEC what you think about the proposal during the public comment period. That'll last up to 60 days. The rule is likely to be finalized later this year. And on the other side of the coin, the state of Texas is going after investment firms it thinks may be boycotting oil and gas companies. Even if they're not boycotting fossil fuels right now, Texas wants to know if they plan to pull investments from them in the future. The Texas Comptroller just wrote to 19 major international investment firms asking them to clarify their policies in fossil fuel investments. Major firms like J.P. Morgan, Credit Suisse and BlackRock, the firms now have 60 days to reply to a series of questions about their fossil fuel policies. If a firm doesn't reply, it'll just be assumed they're boycotting oil and gas companies and added to a final list. Texas will begin the process of cutting business ties with everyone on the final list. There are some exceptions. One leading oil and gas association recently told us it's lack of investment that's the biggest hurdle to producing more energy. So joining us to discuss is the man behind the letters, Texas Comptroller Glenn Hagar. Comptroller, great to see you. Thanks for coming on. Good to be with you today. Comptroller, before we begin, just to clarify, you're not just targeting funds who are not investing in Texas oil and gas companies. You don't want these funds to to ignore oil and gas globally. Is that correct? That's correct. So the state legislature last year had passed a law whereby my office is supposed to look at financial institutions doing business with the state of Texas. So the question is whether these entities are essentially prohibiting investments in oil and gas, period. And if so, then the state of Texas does not necessarily want to do business with them from the state side of it. So my office started this task last year looking through how do we identify the companies, how do we get a test together that we can easily explain. Essentially, last week, we sent out a proposed letter to 19 companies that gives the original potential list. There is no list today, but that is the original companies that we sent a list out to. 
The international climate movement is big. It's international. How much leverage do you feel you have as a single U.S. state? Well, I think, you know, if you look at from a policy perspective, we all know that you need to have a diversified portfolio of energy. I uh, know Texas has a very large percentage of our load off of wind, off of solar. We have both of those. However, the fact is, you know, climate issues are very important. I recognize they're not going to change yet. The fact is to pretend that we're going to transition to a net zero climate in the next year or two really doesn't exist. And so the fact is, if someone wants to drive an electric vehicle, they want to push, we need to have companies be more accountable. But the fact is, is we can't ignore that petroleum-based fossil fuels is still an important part of this economy and really, Paul, will be an important part of the economy for a very long time. What happens if these firms refuse if, if they say no we're not investing in fossil fuels this is our policy then then Texas in turn polar investments pull their money back from these funds what if things were to escalate and these firms say okay we're not doing business with Texas at all how would that hurt the state's finances well, I think the fact is, number one, Texas, thankfully, we're very blessed that we're a very large economy overall. Texas is the ninth largest economy in the world as a state alone. So, you know, we're a very diversified state, a lot of different industry sectors. A lot of people continue to move to Texas because of the business climate and economic opportunities that exist, not just around the rest of the nation, but from around the world, people want to do business here. And so really, if you're looking at this particular issue, you know, hopefully there will be no companies on that list. Companies have 60 days to respond if they do not respond, then we're going to assume they are not engaging in, in type of fossil fuels in any shape, form, or fashion, and they will be on the list. However, those that respond, my office will take that into account. We'll look through it, try to make an exact determination whether they deserve to be on the list or not. And, you know, hopefully the thing is, is we will be able to influence behavior and companies will continue to invest and realize that at least energy production in Texas is an extremely important part, not just of the state economy, the national economy, but the global economy. You sent the letters last week. I assume no responses yet. Yeah, well, they've just essentially got them uh, the beginning of the end of last week, beginning of this week. So we don't expect to have any responses for at least the next 60 days. And as they start coming in, then my office will take the time to go through all those responses, which we welcome that input from companies. And we'll be able to go through that and come up with essentially a final list after that. Of course, the, like you mentioned, this is a preliminary list. I'm curious, did the Texas oil and gas companies, did they report anyone to you guys or how do you get the information? No, so for us, my office, we keep a few different lists. The legislature has asked my office to keep over time for different purposes. And so we have a few vendors that, that we use to help us come up with those lists. In this case, uh, some of them did some initial research, but my office internally came up with a process by which we came up with this initial list. And so, you know, what was important for me is being able to have a process that we can apply fairly to everybody, but also is very open, is very transparent transparent, something that we can explain. And so really, this is just the internal work in my office alone that has come up with these lists. I think it's a big global issue, Comptroller. We'll be happy to have you back on again to, to get an update. Texas Comptroller Glenn Hagar, appreciate it. Thank you. Good to be with you today. Wall Street closed lower today. Stocks sliding after Fed Chair Jerome Powell hinted they'll be more aggressive in tightening monetary policy to fight inflation. He said inflation is, quote, much too high. He also implied the Fed could raise rates by 50 basis points if needed. Last hike was just 25 basis points. 
All three major indexes snapping their winning streaks today. The Dow falling 202 points, six tenths of a percent. The S&P 500 lost two points and the Nasdaq lost 55 points, about four tenths of a percent today. And Chinese property developer Evergrande, remember them? Well, their shares were halted in trading today. It's going to make a big announcement soon, so maybe it's worried about a big sell-off. Evergrande trades on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Their upcoming announcement might provide some insights into its plan to restructure its $300 billion of debt. Last year, it defaulted on some bonds issued overseas, but so far has avoided default on domestic bonds. It's also been struggling to make payment to suppliers, also struggling to complete some projects and homes. The company's shares have gained 4% this year after plunging 89% in 2021. And all is not well in other parts of Hong Kong either. The city is in the midst of its worst COVID-19 outbreak hospitals, reportedly overflowing. And this is despite the city implementing a zero-COVID policy which sought to eradicate the virus rather than try to live with it. Now, the economic damage caused by the policy is forcing authorities to open the city back up in the middle of the COVID wave. Dries Don Ma has the story. Hong Kong leader Carrie Lam announced today that the city will be easing its strict COVID restrictions and lifting its flight bans. A flight ban was imposed on nine countries, but this is no longer necessary. Ryan York, senior faculty fellow and economist at the American Institute for Economic Research, didn't seem too surprised at the move. I would expect leaders like Lam to respond in an attempt to shore up the economic stability of the situation. What they're seeing is that there's uh, an increasing reality that uh, maintaining zero COVID isn't going to be a policy that works long run. The zero COVID strategy has impacted the financial hub's economy. Under the policy, some businesses were forced to close and people's movements are restricted. I feel very frustrated as all my jobs have been cancelled. I am a freelancer and all the jobs my clients requested have been cancelled. What should I do? All business has stopped. Yalk says the economic impacts of the zero-COVID policy are substantial. Zero-COVID prevents the movement of people uh, across borders. Um, the, the, sheer ability, the, the sheer ability to do any sort of transaction drops dramatically. And so the result ends up being that fewer transactions happen, which means there's less um, sort of consumer surplus entering the system in Hong Kong, which ends up having a drag on the overall economic situation. Government data shows that more than 100,000 people have already left Hong Kong this year, in part because of the city's zero-COVID policy. In addition to the restrictions toll on the economy, Yolk says it would be extremely difficult to achieve the goal of actually reducing the number of COVID cases to zero. There's pretty much uniform agreement that when you have person-to-person spread, um, the only way you can achieve true elimination, uh, get to zero COVID, would be to have no contact. And that's just not a feasible approach. Now, unless you're willing to live as sort of the hermit state, Lam announced on Monday that social distancing measures would be eased in phases starting April 21st. Nightclubs, bars and beaches would be allowed to open in the second phase. And people would also be allowed to exercise outdoors without a mask. Don Ma, NTD News. 
And a basket of big Chinese companies called the Golden Dragon China Index is down 20% this year. But Shark Tank star Kevin O'Leary says he thinks now is the right time to buy. He says you can't get the high growth potential that Chinese stocks have anywhere else. He did admit they come with some risk, though. Here he is with CNBC. You can't get that anywhere else. Now, yeah, there's policy issues. Yes, there's the concern about ADRs and all of that. But how else do you get exposure in your portfolio to growth like this? ADR means you don't actually own a share of the Chinese company itself. You own something that represents a share of the company. That could be risky as the SEC weighs delisting Chinese companies. Chinese stocks themselves are on a roller coaster. Some big names plunging last Monday after new COVID lockdowns, then rising after authorities hinted they would ease crackdowns in big business. And joining us live to discuss is Brian McCarthy, Chief Strategist at MacroLens. Brian, great to see you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Brian, are Chinese companies facing economic risks in China as well as the political risks we're seeing right now? Certainly, uh, both are part of the equation. I think the, uh, the economic risks are severe. Uh, we are in the, the aftermath of the bursting of a gigantic housing bubble in China. Uh, their authorities are behind the curve in grappling that, and that's going to cause ongoing problems for Chinese growth, which I think will be extremely weak this year. Uh, and of course, this met with very uh, severely heightened risks on the political front, as there are fears in the market that uh, What's going on in the Ukraine between Russia and the Ukraine uh, could turn into a sort of an east-west proxy war between the U.S. and China, which is clearly sided with Russia, which I think will continue to aid Russia in terms of purchasing their commodities and providing a financial lifeline for them. So markets have had to grapple with the risk that the U.S. might have to uh, sanction China in some way, shape or form, and, and that would be really devastating for the global economy and China's equity markets uh, in particular. So let's get to the China-Russia in just a second. I think it's a key point. One thing, it looks like the Chinese regime recognizes the stress the economy is under. They're, they're loosening monetary policy. We're tightening it to fight inflation. They have very high inflation, but they're loosening policy. What does that mean for them? Well, I think they're they're actually loosening policy in a I would call it way behind the curve. If you think the, the Fed is behind the curve and tightening to address inflation, the PBOC, China's central bank, is greatly behind the curve uh, addressing what is going to be an unfolding deflation in the wake of this housing bubble burst. I, I, it, it could be equivalent, similar to what we saw in 2008. Now, China controls its financial system, so you won't see the breakdown in financial linkages that caused a crisis in dramatic form here. But you, you are the, the value of the collateral, the real estate collateral that uh, that underpins the entire Chinese financial system is now in question. So this is going to be a very, very severe headwind. It's going to require much more aggressive monetary policy than they even contemplate now. And in a world where the Fed is tightening, that raises the risk of uh, a global dislocation stemming from upset in the Chinese RMB, similar to what we saw in 2015. I think that's a risk for later this year. So on that point, if this plays out in China, what does it mean for the American economy? The, as we saw in 2015, if the, if the dollar CNY exchange rate, the dollar RMB exchange rate becomes unhinged, 
then you start to unleash global financial risks because that has feedback effect on all emerging markets. And then you start to worry about the, the banks and the investors that are overweight these emerging markets and the losses they're taking. So I, I think it's, it's a big risk for the global financial system, I would say, in the second half of this year. Are we seeing these big investors reducing their exposure to China at all? I think what we saw, particularly with regards to Chinese tech uh, in the last, you know, prior to last week, was really panic selling. Um, the Chinese economy is, is, is going to slow dramatically. Very bad growth situation. Um, Chinese tech is under severe regulatory pressure. Um, the data that they possess is going to be nationalized. They're not going to be able to profit from it like their counterparts in the U.S. might. Um, so there's a dour outlook there as well. And then you had the problem of the U.S. potentially delisting China firms. However, there, was, there were no new developments on any of these issues in the last few weeks. To me, I believe the panic was unleashed by this growing tail risk that is coming into focus that we're forced into some kind of decoupling because of geopolitical events. And, and, and I think the panic reached a crescendo last week. Chinese tech names rallied 40, 50 percent over the course of the week. I think there's probably still room for that that trade to run a little bit because, to your point, investors had there had been a large capitulation in terms of both domestic and global investors out of those names. Mm -hmm. So, assuming things don't go immediately uh, pear shaped in terms of U.S.-China relations, which I don't think they will, mm -hmm. these stocks could could bounce further. But in my view, it's it's a trade, not an investment. Right. Right. Brian, I regret I, I don't have time for my China-Russia question, but we'll have you back again soon. We can discuss it, but appreciate it. Brian McCarthy, MacroLens, thank Thanks. you. Thank you. The White House has considered sending gas cards to families to help upset record high gas prices before eventually deciding it's not feasible. A White House spokesperson says gas cards are not now seriously under consideration. A source said the administration is worried gas cards won't work because of execution issues and fraud concerns. The source said in the past, cards have been stolen from mailboxes. Now the White House is studying the pros and cons of other proposals. Two states, though, Georgia and Maryland, have taken their own action, suspending state gas taxes temporarily. More states may follow. Gas prices spiked to record highs this month, but started to ease, gradually, gradually decline over the past week or so. But over in Europe, a German economy minister has sealed a gas deal with Qatar. This is one of his steps to reduce Germany's dependence on Russian energy. Anthony's Evelyn Lee has the details. Germany just sealed a deal with Qatar for natural gas. It's a long-term energy partnership to reduce dependence on Russia. Amid rapidly rising energy prices, German producer prices are up more than 25 percent, mostly because of energy. We years ago made the decision to rely on Russian gas, oil and coal, and we are moving away from it as, as fast as we can. Um, this is possible with coal and with oil. Around half of Germany's coal and a third of its oil comes from Russia. The economy minister continued saying it's harder to reduce reliance on Russian gas. Norway is one of the most important gas suppliers for Europe. My first visit to countries that could help Europe and Germany to do this change in the strategy is and was to Norway. 
Norway supplies Germany with around 21% of its gas. And now they're considering building a hydrogen pipeline to reduce Europe's dependence on Russian energy. But more than 65% of gas comes from Russia, and it is by far the largest supplier. Habeck acknowledged the challenge is finding a short-term solution. Although Qatar is one of the world's biggest suppliers of liquefied natural gas, Germany doesn't have any LNG import terminals to receive it. Habeck estimates that building an LNG terminal would take around five years, but he also admits that history shows Germany is good at tripling those times. Nevertheless, he's hoping to complete a terminal in around one and a half years. Germany recently announced two such terminals. Evelyn Lee, NTD News. After the area of Crimea became part of Russia, Russia was sanctioned. So it tried to become less reliant on imports, but those efforts don't seem to be having much of an effect in offsetting current sanctions and the business exodus. And the news fake quarter has more. Russia's attempts to become less reliant on imports show signs of being unsuccessful. Russia tried to become less reliant on imports to fight sanctions following the annexation of Crimea. They started with food, then moved to medicine and technology. However, 81% of Russian manufacturers said they couldn't get Russian-made versions of essential imported products just last year. 75% of retail products, not including food, were imported back in 2020. Isolation in today's global global economy is is ultimately the kiss of death. To make everything themselves is uh, next to an impossibility. Don Kaufman is the co-founder of Theotrade, an online financial education service. Kaufman says Russia's future looks bleak. The head of Russia's Tartarstan region said in a news release that in current realities, it is necessary to ensure the availability of basic food. Up to 90% of Russian banks and companies use Western software, and Russia depends heavily on Western technology for its natural gas and oil fields. Roman Sharameta is the founding director of American University Kyiv and an economist who coincidentally left Ukraine one day before the invasion. Sharameta says Russia's economy is mainly about oil and natural gas. Unfortunately, they uh, have not developed any significant technological developments. They have not developed any significant manufacturing development. They are very highly dependent on the West, pretty much on everything. This month, Russian leader Vladimir Putin said the USSR really lived under sanctions, developed and achieved tremendous success. Don Kaufman has a different view. Will people be able to eat? Possibly. Um, you know, our technology is going to move forward minimally. Uh, as I was saying, you know, on the uh, on the front of uh, of creation of weapons and so forth, I believe that that will actually forge forward. But again, it's the individuals, it's the people of the uh, of the country of Russia that are ultimately going to pay the price. Faye Quarter, NTD News. And chip makers face a shortage of critical equipment over the next two years that could crimp their expansion plans. It's according to Peter Wenick. He's the chief executive of ASML. That's a company who dominates the global market for machines used to etch circuits onto silicon wafers. When it told the Financial Times his company is ramping up shipments of the machines, they're kind of like printing presses for silicon chips. But he says demand for the machines is so high, he expects shortages over the next two years. Intel, which relies on ASML's equipment, says there's still time to resolve the shortage because it takes two years to build the shell of a chip factory and ASML, ASML's machines won't be needed until year three or four. 
But while ASML says there's still time to expand capacity, it's not that simple. Because of long lead times for key components like lenses, they're needed to make the machines. Well, could be a chip shortage for a while. Still to come this evening, stay with us. Social media stars are making big bucks from influencer marketing. Find out how much they're making on each platform. And McDonald's is bringing back a fan favorite sauce. It only appeared twice since it debuted. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. And did you ever wonder how much money influencers make on social media sites like TikTok, Instagram, or YouTube? Well, a recent report shows us where they make the most money and how much they make on average per post. Therese Folzo has the details. Influencer marketing is expected to hit over $4 billion this year, and for 2023, possibly even higher at $5 billion, according to Insider Intelligence. You can make tens of thousands if not for some of the tier one people, hundreds of thousands of dollars per post. Influencer marketing is when you pay an influencer to promote your products or services, mainly on social media platforms. I spoke to Sarah Evans, who is an influencer on multiple platforms like Instagram and Twitter. She has over 100,000 followers on Twitter alone. I get any number of DM inquiries from crypto, NFT, those sorts of companies looking to pay me to tweet about them. And they might be saying, we'll offer you several hundred dollars to tweet today. I won't um, engage those. That's just not part of how I run my personal brand. But you can imagine that they're probably reaching out to many people. According to a report by influencer marketing firm Isaiah, influencers make the most on YouTube, averaging $4,500 per post. TikTok comes in second with $3,500. Pinterest at $2,000 per post. Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter round out the list. Evan said her work is not just about money. Building genuine relationships is just as important. I've always made it a point to help support, engage, get people jobs, uh, make connections. I think that's been the most personally rewarding that I'd view as success. While influencer marketing is picking up, it's still far behind corporate advertising on social media, which is expected to hit around $60 billion this year. That's about 15 times the size of influencer marketing. Phil Zoe, NTD News. We finish this evening with good news for people who like to dip their McDonald's chicken nuggets and french fries into something a little more daring than ketchup. McDonald's is bringing back its Szechuan sauce on March 31st. The condiment includes soy, ginger, vinegar and garlic and will only be available through the McDonald's app. Fan favorite sauce made its debut in 1998, made two brief appearances since then. Customers can now get the sauce with their order of McNuggets or buy up to five containers on the side. Five containers. <laughs> That's the latest business news from NTD Business Team and myself, Paul Graney. You can still catch NTD Evening News, Stephanie Cox at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. For NTD Business, it's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.